Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 42, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Before we get into Deuteronomy chapter 31, I want to take a few minutes to discuss something interesting about the chapter that we just completed, Deuteronomy 30. Now turn your Bibles to the opening verses, please, of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. There it begins, when the time arrives that all these things have come upon you, both the blessings and the curses which I have presented to you, and you are there among the nations to which Adonai your God has driven you, then at last you will start thinking about what has happened to you. And you will return to Adonai your God and pay attention to what he has said, which will be exactly what I'm ordering you to do today, you and all your children, with all your heart, all your being. And at that point, Adonai your God will reverse your exile and show you mercy. He will return and gather you from all the peoples to which Adonai your God has scattered you. Now, this is the classic, if then approach to the law that's so characteristic of the Torah. God says, when Israel has been exiled to pagan nations due to their disobedience and rebellion, if, if they will return to Jehovah their God and pay attention to what he has said, then God will reverse their exile and show them mercy and return them to the promised land, their inheritance. So the deal is that first, Israel must recognize why they're in exile. Second, they must sincerely repent, meaning they must turn from the ways they've been following and thus to return to Yehovah. And third, they must begin to obey Yehovah again. Not just know his word, not know what it says, but to do it. And fourth, in response to these three things, the Lord will bring them back to the land. Now, this is the formula that his people must follow after they've fallen away if they have any hope of being taken back by God. And of course, that's how it went. When Judah was taken to Babylon in 586 B.C., While exiled in Babylon, they admitted that they were wrong. The Jews heeded their prophets, like Ezekiel and Daniel. They repented from their ways, and so Jehovah delivered them. He took them back. He reversed their exile in a mere 70 years. However, this happened, you see, because Judah also known in the Bible as the Southern Kingdom, reacted altogether differently than their brother kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, to the north, when they suffered their own exile. Some 135 years earlier, the ten tribes of Israel that formed the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, were exiled from their land to the land of the Assyrians. But they never returned. 
That's because they never admitted they're wrong. They never repented from their apostasy that caused their destruction. They never determined to become obedient again. In fact, they received exactly what they wanted. And it says that they wanted to be exactly like their Gentile neighbors. So God gave them their free will choice. The tribes of the northern kingdom all but disappeared because they didn't follow the formula of Deuteronomy 30. On the other hand, the kingdom of Judah, almost one and a half centuries later, did follow the formula of repentance and renewed obedience, and the God of Israel returned them to the land. Several centuries later, in the Roman exile, after Jesus' death, God said that he would do a new thing in his set-apart people. The provision that we just read of Deuteronomy 30 was that while they were off in exile, the people would have to repent there and then return to God while they were still in a foreign place. After they did that, only then would God return them back to the land. That's not what was to happen, though, when the Jews of the Roman exile left for their exile. And it's from that Roman exile, by the way, that Judah has returned to form modern Israel in 1948. Isaac Newton is one of the many wonderful theologians who've done their best to pull us back from our often misguided religious zeal in trying to use the biblical prophecies as a kind of divining rod to see the future by reminding us that that wasn't the purpose of those unerring words of the prophets. Rather, the holy prophecies are so that when these prophetic things come about, then his people will know that it was God who changed the course of history who intervened on their behalf, and that his prophetic word is nothing less than an order of the universe to make it so. So divine order that cannot be resisted, cannot be abdone, abdone, any who could fight against it, well, we'd be put to shame. We'd be destroyed. You can't win against God's will. Turn your Bibles now to Ezekiel 36. Now, this is an exciting chapter of prophecy that in our era, it's more present than future. Actually, it's something that we are eyewitnesses to, though few Christians see it. It's something that the saints of old would have given anything to see happen as we have. But sadly... The vast bulk of Messiah's church is so infatuated with the end times and looking ahead to, to, to a rapture and to tribulation, we're blind to this incredible, incredible fulfillment of prophecy that's happening right now, today. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to read verses 1 through 32. Ezekiel chapter 36, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 689. Now you, human being, 
prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, Mountains of Israel, hear the message from Adonai. Adonai Elohim says, The enemy is boasting over you. Ha! Even the ancient high places are ours now. Therefore prophesy and say that Adonai Elohim says, Because they desolated you and swallowed you up from every side so that the other nations could take possession of you, and now people are gossiping about you and slandering you, therefore, mountains of Israel, hear the message of Adonai Elohim. This is what Adonai Elohim says to the mountains and the hills, the streams and the valleys, the desolate wastes, the abandoned cities, now preyed on and derided by the other surrounding nations. Therefore, this is what Adonai Elohim says. In the heat of my jealousy, I speak against the other nations and all of Edom. Since rejoicing with all their heart, they have irrigated my land to themselves as a possession. And with utter contempt, they've seized it as prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the streams, and the valleys, that Adonai Elohim says this, I speak in my jealousy and fury because you have endured being shamed by the nations. Therefore, thus says Adonai Elohim, I have raised my hand and I have sworn that the nations surrounding you will bear their shame. But you, mountains of Israel, you will sprout your branches. You'll bear your fruit for my people Israel, who will soon return. I'm here for you. I will turn toward you. Then you will be tilled and sown. I will multiply your population. All the house of Israel. All of it. The cities will be inhabited. The ruins will be rebuilt. I will multiply both the human and animal populations. They'll increase and be productive. I'll cause you to be inhabited as you were before. Indeed, I'll do more good than before, and you will know that I am Adonai. I will cause people to walk on you, my people Israel. They will possess you, and you will be their inheritance. Never again will you make them childless. Adonai Elohim says, because they say to you, land, you devour people and make your nations childless. Therefore, you will no longer devour people. You will not make your nations childless anymore, says Adonai Elohim. I will not permit the nations to shame you or the peoples to reproach you any longer. And you will no more cause your nations to stumble, says Adonai Elohim. The word of Adonai came to me, human being. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by the manner of life and their actions. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of Nida. Therefore I poured out my fury on them because of the blood they had shed in the land, because they defiled it with their idols. I scattered them among the nations. I dispersed them throughout the countries. I judged them in keeping with the manner of life and actions. When they came to the nations they were going to, they profaned my holy name so that the people said of them, These are Adonai's people who've been exiled from his land. But I'm concerned about my holy name, which the house of Israel is profaning among the nations where they've gone. Therefore, tell the house of Israel 
That Adonai Elohim says this, I'm not going to do this for your sake, house of Israel, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've been profaning among the nations since you went there. I'll set apart my great name to be regarded as holy since it has been profaned in the nations. You profaned it among them. The nations will know that I'm Adonai, says Adonai Elohim, when before their eyes I am set apart through you to be regarded as holy. For I will take from among the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and return you to your own soil. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit inside of you. I'll take that stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit inside you and cause you to live by my laws. Respect my rulings and obey them. You will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will save you from all of your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and increase it. And I won't send famine against you. I will multiply the yield of fruit from the trees and increase production in the fields so that you never again suffer the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your actions that were not good. As you look at yourselves... You'll loathe yourselves for your guilt, for your disgusting practices. Understand, says Adonai Elohim, I'm not doing this for your sake. Instead, be ashamed. Be dismayed for your ways, house of Israel. This is describing the return of the exiles of Israel from their Roman exile. And in a sense, this includes the ten northern tribes from the Assyrian exile. This is, the, this is describing the return of all the tribes of Israel to their ancient homeland, a place that the world still insists on calling Palestine. But what's so different about this return is especially exhibited when we read in Ezekiel 36.22 where it says that what I'm about to do for you isn't for your sake, so don't feel good about it. Like you've earned it. Rather, the Lord said He's going to do something that's for the purpose of protecting His holy name, which you didn't do while you were out there. In the most amazing twist of events, the Lord says that while it was Israel's job as his set-apart people, even in their exile, to take the word of God to the nations, because he set Israel apart to be the guardians of the word of God, instead, they profane God's name in these foreign lands of their exile. They profaned it to the point that the people, Gentiles, said, this is the people who are supposedly the people of God? Them? And is this not the general attitude of the world today towards the Jewish people? So God says that while His holy name should have been raised high 
by the Jews while in their exile. Instead, the Jews profaned it. So God must rescue his own holy name. And the way he chose to do this was by bringing the Jews back out of the nations where he scattered them and brought them back to the promised land. In other words, since all the Jews were doing was misrepresenting him anyway, he'd just take them out of the nations where he exiled them and bring them back to his homeland, partially at least for the purpose of stopping it. He was going to do something so amazing that this would set his name on high again, despite the apostasy of his own people. The Lord's solution, you see, was not to do as he had done in the Babylonian exile and return, nor as he required in the Assyrian exile, from where the ten tribes did not return. Rather, as it says in Ezekiel 36.24, first, he's going to gather the Jews just as they are from the far reaches of the world and bring them back to the land. First, that's what he's going to do. Then he's going to sprinkle clean water on them and cleanse them. Even though they wouldn't reach out to him, he's going to reach out to them and bring them home in their current state. Do you see this amazing turn of events as compared to what we just read in Deuteronomy 30? They'll be brought back to the promised land while they're still in a state of rebellion. And it is there, in their land, that the Lord shall, by an act of His divine will, clean them up. No repentance was required by the Jews. No returning to the ways of the Lord was needed for their homeland to be reestablished. And it certainly wasn't. Once the Israelites were back in the land, the Lord would, as it says in Ezekiel 36, uh, 26 and 27, turn those stony hearts to flesh and put the Spirit of God inside of them. It would be this act of divine intervention that would put the desire to be obedient to Yehovah into them. He would write the Torah on their hearts. Therefore, we see this pattern of redemption developed that Christians have counted on for centuries. The Lord woos whom He will. He plants in those He elects the desire to come to Him, the ability to obey Him. And this is all done by putting the Holy Spirit inside of the people. Now, I hope you understand the radical concept that Ezekiel is speaking about. It's no wonder that those Jewish exiles living in Babylon found what he had to say, say either laughable or completely incomprehensible. The Lord had never put his spirit inside an inherently sinful man up to that point. And in fact, such a thing wouldn't be possible until Yeshua came. And he atoned for man's sins and he made us acceptable to God at a whole other level, never before attainable. How 
can a modern day church with all the knowledge available to us read these words, see with our own eyes what the Lord has done and still think that the Hebrews have been rejected by Him? Equally, how can so many Jews openly say, oh, we're not chosen, we're not set apart, we really don't even want to be, after knowing what the Lord has done for them. Believers, we have a lot of work ahead of us, don't we? Okay, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. That is page 232 in the complete Jewish Bible. Moses went and spoke the following words to all of Israel. I'm 120 years old today. I can't get around any longer. Moreover, Adonai has said to me, you will not cross this Jordan. And Adonai, your God, he'll cross, he'll cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations ahead of you. And you will dispossess them. Joshua, he will cross over ahead of you. As Adonai has said, Adonai will do to them what he did to Sichon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land. He destroyed them. Adonai will defeat them ahead of you, and you're to do to them just as I've ordered you to do. Now be strong, be bold, don't be afraid or frightened of them, for Adonai your God is going with you. He'll neither fail you nor abandon you. And next Moses summoned Joshua and in the sight of all Israel said to him, Be strong, be bold, for you are going with this people into the land Adonai swore to their ancestors he'd give them. You will be the one causing them to inherit it. But Adonai, it is he who will go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you, so don't be afraid and don't be downhearted. Then Moses wrote down this Torah. He gave it to the Kohanim, the priests, the descendants of Levi who carried the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai into them, all to the leaders of Israel. And Moses gave them these orders. At the end of every seven years, during the festival of Sukkot and the year of Shemitah, when all Israel have come to appear in the presence of Adonai at the place he'll choose, you're to read this Torah before all Israel so that they can hear it. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the little ones, the foreigners you have in your town, so that they can hear, learn, fear, Adonai your God, and take care to obey all the words of this Torah. And so that their children, who've not known, can hear and learn to fear Adonai your God for as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Adonai said to Moses, the time is coming for you to die. Summon Joshua. Present yourselves in the tent of meeting so that I can commission him. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and Adonai appeared there in the tent in a column of cloud. The column of cloud stood above the entrance to the tent, and Adonai said to Moses, You are about to sleep with your ancestors, but this people will get up and offer themselves as prostitutes to the foreign gods of the land where they are going. And when they are with those gods, they will abandon me. 
break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will flare up and I will abandon them and hide my face from them. They'll be devoured. And many calamities and troubles will come upon them. Then they will ask, Haven't these calamities come upon us because our God isn't here with us? But I'll be hiding my face from them because of all the evil they will have done in turning to other gods. Therefore, write this song for yourselves. Teach it to the people of Israel. Have them learn it by heart so this song can be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I brought them into the land, I swore to their ancestors, flowing with milk and honey, and they've eaten their fill, grown fat, turned to the other gods, serving them, despising me, broken my covenant. Then, after many calamities and troubles have come upon them, this song will testify before them as a witness, because their descendants will still be reciting it, will have not forgotten it. For I know how they think even now even before I have brought them into the land about which I swore. So Moses wrote this song that same day, and he taught it to the people of Israel. Adonai also commissioned Joshua the son of Nun with these words, Be strong and full of courage, for you are to bring the people of Israel into the land about which I swore to them, and I'll be with you. Moses kept writing the words of this Torah in a book until he was done, and when he had finished... Moses gave these orders to the Levites who carried the ark with the covenant of Adonai. Take this book of the Torah and put it next to the ark with the covenant of Adonai your God so that it can be there to witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. Here, even while I'm still alive with you today, you've rebelled against Adonai, so how much more you're going to do after my death? assemble for me all the leaders of your tribes and your officials so that I can say these things in their hearing calling heaven and earth to witness against them because I know that after my death you will become very corrupt you'll turn aside from the way that I've ordered you and disaster will come upon you in the the world to come because you will do what Adonai sees as evil and provoke him by your deeds Then Moses spoke in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel the words of this song from beginning to end. We've exited that four-chapter section that held and still holds so much mystery and intrigue, and now we enter the last four chapters of Deuteronomy that are an epilogue as well as a period of transition from Moses to Joshua. Really, it's an epilogue to the entire Torah, not just Deuteronomy. At the center of it is the story of Moses' last days on earth. Moses announces that his time's over, that Joshua is the new God-ordained leader of Israel, and then Moses dies up on Mount Nebo in Moab. Now Moses says in verse 2 that he's become an old man of 120 years. Now despite what the complete Jewish Bible says, as do most versions, Moses declares that he can no longer go out and come in. Usually this is translated with the sense that Moses is tired and feeble. 
pretty understandable at that age, that he just can't get around anymore. Well, that's incorrect. As I explained in a previous lesson, the phrase to go out and come in was a purely military term. It referred to an army gathering together for battle, going out and fighting, and then returning, hopefully victorious. Moses was not saying that he was too old and infirm to lead Israel in battle. Rather, he was saying that because the Lord had decided that Moses would not cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land, that his meter had simply run out. His time was up. A new leader would lead the coming holy war upon Canaan. By the way, we can believe that Moses was 120 years old with no trouble. Even though we read reports the average lifespan of that era was perhaps 30 years due to disease and war and the high infant mortality rate. We also have records from Middle Eastern societies of that day to prove that it was not uncommon for people, Gentiles, to live to 110 and even occasionally up to 140 years. But it's also interesting how the 120 years assigned to Moses is completely consistent with what God ordained back in Genesis. Genesis 6.3 says, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they are flesh. Therefore, their lifespan is to be 120 years. Moses lived to the maximum ideal lifespan that God had ordained. Now Moses says that the Lord will not permit him to cross over the Jordan. Rather, the Lord himself will cross over ahead of Israel, and then Joshua will lead Israel to cross over. Notice the multiple use of the term cross over. I think this is significant. A long time ago when we were studying Genesis, I told you that the word Hebrew was thought to be a derivative of the Akkadian word Iparu, which means one who crossed over. It was back then referring to Abraham, who crossed over the great river, the Euphrates, in order to go to the land that God said he'd show Abraham. Now, in this context, it's referring to Moses being held back from crossing over but God crossing over ahead of Joshua and leading Israel into the promised land of Canaan. This entire theme of crossing over isn't hard to grasp. Crossing over means to leave one side and go to the other. It's a decisive moment in time when a change in status occurs. Because the Torah operates more in the earthly realm, bringing heavenly principles down to physical form. These great and fundamental God God principles it elucidates are always presented in a way that man can see with our own eyes. Men literally and physically lived the experience of crossing over. They lived the reality of leaving behind an old existence for a new one. They physically experienced 
crossing over the mountains and the territorial boundaries and rivers in order that a purpose is fulfilled even though they might not know that God was behind it all. Today, those who would be part of God's people are still called to cross over. To cross over from the unclean to the clean. To cross over from the common to the holy. To cross over from the eternal death to the eternal life. To be a spiritual Ipuru, Hebrew, one who chooses to cross over at God's direction. Indeed, instead of the need for us to enter into a new territory or or for us to change nationality or to, to travel some distance, it's become a spiritual issue of trusting the one who created us and provided for our redemption. Just as Israel had to cross over into the land of their rest, which was Canaan, we have to cross over into the land of our rest, which is Yeshua. Israel couldn't just stay out in the wilderness and have the land brought to them. They would, by their own choice, have to cross over into it. We can't remain in the wilderness of this world and still have the land of our rest, our shalom, brought to us. In a spiritual journey, we too must actively and purposely cross over in order to possess our inheritance and leave that wilderness of the world behind. And verse 4, the Lord promises to do what he did to those nations on the east side of the Jordan River, in the area of the Transjordan where Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh settled. He says he's going to do that to the current inhabitants of Canaan on the west bank of the Jordan. He's going to wipe them out. And Joshua would replace Moses as the supreme military commander of Israel. So the theme of holy war is once again thrust forward. Verse 6 paints the picture of God as a holy warrior leading his people to a victory that's a foregone conclusion. If we're going to apprehend the context of Deuteronomy and much of the Torah since Exodus... We have to keep reminding ourselves that at the center of it all, like it or not, is holy war. Phase one of God's holy war was the escape from Egypt and the annihilation of the kings Og and Bashan, who were Amorites. Phase two of the holy war was the conquest of Canaan. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here But I urge you to write it well into your memories so that much of the language that we'll encounter in the book of Joshua, which we'll begin within a month, will be holy war language. And this is important because God's holy war has strict rules of engagement and protocol, the violation of which has severe consequences. But as I've touched lightly on before 
We must not ever suspect that God's role as the warrior leader of his army in holy war ended with the close of the Old Testament. The greatest damage ever done to the church, damage that's ongoing and woven into the doctrine of the modern institutional church, was when Christian leaders declared against Yeshua's direct statement to the contrary in Matthew 5, that the old God of the Old Testament was no longer in control and that the new God of the New Testament has taken over. That the God who never changes has changed in dramatic fashion. That the attribute of the Lord as a divine warrior king has been discarded in favor of a pacifist who wouldn't harm a fly. I realize I'm perhaps preaching to the choir on this subject, but I equally realize that the concept of our Messiah as the conquering warrior who will slay millions in holy war runs contrary to the image of many more Christians who might be hearing this message for the first time. This is such a core issue for us to deal with. And since Deuteronomy, this has led us right to it. Right to this issue. So let's take another detour today to discuss this issue of the Lord Yeshua being a holy warrior. All right. Holy War Warrior. And let's take another detour today to the book of Revelation. Open your Bibles to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. It's going to be page 1545 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It's important you follow along with me. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of rushing waters and like the sound of pealing thunder. The sound I heard was also like that of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living beings and the elders and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been ransomed from the world. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been ransomed from among humanity as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. On their lips, no lie was found. They are without defect. Next, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on earth. To every nation, tribe, language, and people in a loud voice, he said, Fear God! Give Him glory! For the hour has come when He will pass judgment. Worship the one who's made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
And then another angel, a second one, followed him, saying, She has fallen, she has fallen, Babel the Great. She made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. And then another angel, a third one, followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury poured undiluted into the cup of his rage. He will be tormented by fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. And the smoke from their tormenting goes up forever and ever. They will have no rest, day or night. Those who worship the beast and its image and those who receive the mark of its name. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people. Those who observe his commandments and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. Next I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, how blessed are the dead who who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they may rest from their efforts, for the things they have accomplished will follow along with them. And then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was Someone like a son of man with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. The one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. Then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of the fire and he called in a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because they're ripe. The angel swung the sickle down into the earth, gathered the earth's grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's fury. The wine press was trodden down outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. Here we have it. God's fury is poured out and his agents of death are no less than the Lamb of God and his warrior angels are essentially his army officers. The lamb, a sweeping sickle harvesting both the saved to glory and the unsaved to eternal damnation. Blood flowing at the hand of Christ as high as a horse's bridle in the valley of Armageddon. All this is present here. Where's the pacifist God of the New Testament that knew only personal sacrifice and mercy, love for all men. The one who always turns the other cheek and wouldn't punish anybody. Don't ever think that any of God's attributes have been set aside. He bears them all at all times. Of course, there are times when one attribute seems to be more prevalent than the others. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last few years and we worked our way through the Torah, 
you've watched a subtle principle evolve. Agents of God operate in opposite ways simultaneously. Salt is an agent of God. It can be used to season and preserve and seal a covenant. It can be used to poison. It can be used to end life when a covenant is broken. Blood is an agent of God. The unjust spilling of it can be the source of death. Or the just and sacrificial spilling of it can be the source of life. The Torah itself is an agent of God that brings curses on the one hand and blessings on the other. Angels can rescue, they can destroy. Jesus poured out his own blood as a meek lamb. He will soon spill the blood of countless millions as the fiercest warrior the world has ever seen. Just as conquering the Transjordan was Holy War Phase 1 and conquering Canaan was Holy War Phase 2, the looming battle of Armageddon and the pouring out of God's wrath on the end times world is Holy War Phase 3. And of course, by definition, it's God who orders it. And it is God who in phase three in his attribute as Messiah, who leads this holy war and his holy warriors to certain victory. Verses seven and eight, back in Deuteronomy, recount the official passing of the torch from Moses to Joshua. And in a public ceremony for everybody to see, Joshua is now the supreme human commander of Israel. I love the exhortation in verse 8, where Moses tells Joshua not to fear because the Lord is with you. I just love to sing that song, Emmanuel, meaning God is with us, a name the Bible gives to Messiah. And we get a little piece of information that's useful especially because soon we're going to begin that study of the book of Joshua. Moses instructs Joshua that he's to apportion the land among the people. But wait a minute. I thought back in the book of Numbers, Moses had already done that by means of drawing of the lots. In fact, we get an entire listing of the tribes and the regions they'll occupy back in Numbers 24. But what happened was this. Moses indeed assigned general regions that were determined by the drawing of lots. Drawing lots, by the way, was always seen as a way to let God decide a matter. However, the exact dimensions of each region was to be determined according to the population of the tribe that would occupy it. The more people in the tribe, the larger that tribe's territory and borders it would be Joshua who would preside over this determination. Now beginning in verse 9, the matter of the Torah itself as a holy document is addressed. Now here we're told that Moses wrote it down. He gave it to the priests of the tribe of Levi. Now the term used here was this Torah. 
So it's referring specifically to what we call Deuteronomy. The earlier Torah had been handed down orally. Sages tell us that while the finger of God had indeed written the Ten Commandments, the bulk of the laws and the commands as given to Moses were memorized and handed down. Word of mouth. Only later were these oral transmissions written onto scrolls. Now, this idea unnerves some people in our modern times, but one must understand that such a thing was the norm for this era, and actually, it has its advantages. You see, the tribal elders were always responsible to maintain the integrity of the traditions that they taught to the following generation. And then the next generation taught when it was their turn, and so on. So there were always those elders who knew the truths of the traditions. And if the next generation tried to change something, the older generation was there to refute it. And remember, it's only in our modern era where respect for the knowledge and wisdom of the elderly has become lost. This system of checks and balances on oral traditions works very well. In the modern era of written documents, memorization and the telling of stories is generally a lost medium of communicating a society's history and ethics. Books and written records are now considered our best and really the only valid sources of reference. But make no mistake, they can be corrupted and destroyed. When men want to radically change societies, the first thing they do is to denounce and destroy the records and the literature from the previous generation, thus breaking the link. And it is in many ways much easier to do now since the system of oral tradition is no longer operable, at least in Western culture. Moses gave the writings to the priests, to the Levites who carried the ark, and to the leaders of Israel because it was their duty to faithfully transmit God's word to the following generations. Well, then we get a very interesting instruction. The entire book of Deuteronomy, this Torah, was to be read to all Israel every seventh year during the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. The seven-year sabbatical cycle was to be used to ensure that all generations of Israel knew the words of Torah. The seventh year of that cycle was known as the year as Shemitah the year of release. Because in the seventh year, Hebrew slaves were to be released. Land taken as collateral on loans was to be returned to the original owner. And debts of all kinds were to be forgiven. The instruction includes that the whole congregation of Israel is to assemble at the site God will choose. This just simply means wherever God decided to put the central sanctuary, the temple, on the occasion of Sukkot. 
And further, while the whole congregation usually means the male representatives of each household, in this particular case, verse 12 makes it clear that women and children, even foreigners, were to present themselves at the temple on the seventh year at Sukkot. Now recall that the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three God-described pilgrimage festivals that requires the whole congregation of Israel to come to the temple. But whole congregation usually only meant the males. Okay. In the seventh year, however, that expands to mean literally every Israelite, regardless of age or sex, was ordered to come to the temple for Sukkot. And the reason was so that everyone could hear the reading of the Torah, which was primarily Deuteronomy. Unfortunately, just as we never read of the Hebrews obeying the law of Jubilee, that 50-year cycle, neither do we read of but two occasions when the when this law of reading the Torah on the sabbatical year at the Feast of Tabernacles actually happened. One time was when King Josiah ordered it. Find that in 2 Kings 23. The other was when Ezra ordered it. At the same time as the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. We read that in Nehemiah 7, 8, 9. Moses expounding on the laws given at Sinai and his emphasis on the spirit of the law as the key element necessary for properly carrying out the written laws makes Deuteronomy the important document that it is. It's in this same vein that we need to view Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. On the hillside above the Sea of Galilee, Messiah is sermonizing. He's attempting to revive the spirit of the law that Moses had spoken of because the religious leaders had since turned the law into a mechanical system of rules and regulations and it had become this heavy burden. Yeshua's teachings are the essence of all of the word of God. Just as Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy is the essence of the entire Torah. A favorite and appropriate teaching of the modern church comes from Galatians 3. When Paul says, there is no more male and female, and that all disciples of Yeshua are one new person. Paul is dealing with the principle that's being established here in Deuteronomy 31. All of God's people, women and children, are to be given equal access to his word. Further, men and women, lay people, are perfectly capable of understanding the Torah. Perfectly capable of carrying out their appropriate Torah-defined roles. By Jesus' day, the religious authorities had abolished this principle. They had set up barriers in the temple between men and women. We've all heard of the women's court in the temple courtyard. Today, they usually separate men and women's sections in synagogues. 
If you go to Israel, there's even a men's side and a women's side with a barrier in between at the wailing wall, the kotel. Young girls are given different material to learn about Torah than young boys are. The concept of women as lesser and males as greater was firmly entrenched in entrenched in Judaism. And it was something that Yeshua and Paul's and others had to deal with delicately. This idea of women as lower was not biblical. Not biblical. But it certainly suited the male-dominated Middle Eastern society that had moved far away from God. Equally certain, the Bible carefully defines different roles for each sex. But the roles are viewed scripturally as of equal importance. And the sexes as of equal value. Since Paul found himself as an emissary to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire, but at times also had to deal with believing Jews, he had to not only deal with Jewish customs in this regard, but also with the various customs of those other nations as well. Some cultures didn't mind women taking on roles as teachers or priests, while others were vehemently against it. Some wanted women to play a central role in their religious rituals. Others simply wanted them to comply with whatever their husbands decided for them. In general, unless the customs were outlandishly bigoted, Paul advised the disciples of Yeshua to not make it an issue where possible and to simply operate within it so as not to offend those to whom the good news needed to be presented. But now comes that moment in verse 14 where Jehovah tells Moses that indeed his meter has expired. Moses is going to die very soon. Therefore, Moses is to gather up Joshua. They're to come to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where the Lord will be present. And the Lord appeared as a cloud in front and above the tent of meeting, above the entrance. And there he gave Moses and Joshua their marching orders. Notice that while Moses would go inside the tent and meet with the Lord, Joshua could not. And so this meeting took place outside the tent. This was because as a Levite and God's mediator, Moses was entitled to go inside the sanctuary. But Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. Therefore, he was not permitted inside. Jehovah is recorded as having used the typical vocabulary of that era in that he tells Moses he's going to die soon and go be with his ancestors. He's going to die. Now, th- this reflects ancestor worship. Okay. And that concept was part of their language. To a degree, it was part of their thinking. Now, of course, it wasn't being validated by Jehovah. We, we have things that we say that we know what they mean, but they really don't mean what they say. Okay. And usually we don't even know where such an expression ever came from. What does it mean? That's how the cookie crumbles. 
How does a cookie crumbling help us to understand anything? How about letting the cat out of the bag? Animal cruelty. I mean, anybody have any idea where that American idiom meaning to divulge a secret came from? Well, we say it. We say it all the time. It certainly has nothing to do with cats or bags or cookies. But we do understand what we mean. It's kind of like that with some of these sayings and these phrases we read in the Bible. We have to ascertain more what that phrase communicated to to people of that era, less than what the words technically and literally mean. Well, then Yehovah delivers some bad news. He tells Moses and Joshua that after both of them are dead and gone, the Israelites will do all these things that God has warned against, which amounts to breaking the terms of the covenant. And as a consequence, the Lord's anger is going to flare up against Israel and the Lord will hide his face, he says, from them. In Hebrew word, the Lord will hide his panim. Panim. Okay, panim used in this way means presence. His presence. God will pull away from the Hebrews. To be in someone's panim face Presence means more than just being there. Just a Shema means more than just hearing something. It implies that person's favor and blessing. So God says that because of the coming apostasy of Israel after Joshua's death, he will remove himself and therefore his protection and his blessing from over the people of Israel. The people will feign ignorance. They'll ask the question that's asked in verse 17. Haven't these calamities come upon us because the Lord just isn't here with us? In other words, they realize that for some reason or another, the Lord has removed himself from their midst. And therefore, all these terrible things are happening to them. But gee, uh, we really don't understand why. I don't get it. The Lord confirms it by saying, indeed it is so. He's removed himself from them because of their evil of turning to other gods. But the Lord wants not to destroy. He wants to discipline his people. He wants them to learn and understand just what it is they've done wrong. What the remedy for their solution is. Therefore, he instructs Moses to write a song to teach it to Israel right now, right away. Teach it to them now so they can memorize it. Have it well in their memories before the rebellion that will come about happens. This song The song of Moses is going to be the subject of our next lesson. Okay, we'll see you next week.